gun Ramos looking like he's got one more good run Sips a little shaky But his heart is still true Oh how that dog loves hunting with me and you Sporting dog adventures run The Sporting Dog Adventures podcast is proudly brought to you by Soggy Acres Retrievers. Remember, everyone deserves a Soggy Dog. Hey, I want to welcome everyone to Sporting Dog Adventures. This is a podcast that basically builds off of our hit TV show, Sporting Dog Adventures TV, that we are on national TV for nine years with. I'm here sitting in southern Wisconsin with my two dogs who think they're co-hosts. Their names are Scarlett and Memphis. They basically try to mop me whenever I talk, whether we're doing a Facebook Live or a podcast, and they think that they're going to sit on my lap and somehow be part of the show. So I do apologize if you hear them in the background as they are scurrying around and bringing me dog toys. Occasionally you hear the squeaky dog toy as they really feel they found a treasure and want to bring it to me. On today's episode, we are going to talk about uh, training with an electric collar or e-collar or training without and the pros and cons. Uh, we're going to talk about a duck hunting tip for how to get your blinds ready for the upcoming season. And we're also going to talk about our training tip, which is going to be the duration of training you do with your dog. So I hope this episode really, really brings you in and you enjoy it. And please always feel that you can reach out to us with questions you'd like to hear answered. You just need to email Jeff Fuller at SportingDogTV at gmail.com and we might just use your question on our show. So let's get to e-collars. So e-collars have always been called shock collars. And the term shock collar has a negative connotation before it because it makes you feel like you're doing something bad to your dog. You are shocking them. You are electrocuting them. You're burning their hide. That is what the anti-e-collar people will lead you to believe. And it might not be that far from the truth on the collars of 30 years ago or 40 years ago. I believe they probably didn't have all of the options as far as intensity levels and they didn't have the training mastery behind it that e-collars do now and how they're used. E-collars are banned in many countries and they are looked at again in a negative way that you're harming the dog. But I will tell you that my opinion on e-collars is I would not train a dog without them. Uh, I use e-collars for hunting training but I also use them for obedience training on people's dogs. Uh, Like any training device can it be abused absolutely i was on a uh, dog talk live on facebook Uh, oh gosh this was probably about a year ago and someone from ireland said that you're not allowed to use electric collars on dogs in england and ireland because they are indeed illegal and they said don't you think that there is a way to abuse them and i told the person you know what rocks aren't illegal but if you throw a rock at a dog you can harm a dog A stick or a uh, crop that people will use for healing with dogs are not illegal. At the same time, 
you can absolutely abuse a dog if you're striking them with one. It kind of comes down to, not, not kind of, it basically comes down to any training item or any item out in the area where you're training could be used to abuse that animal. It's not about the item, it's about the person. Are there trainers and are there people that own dogs that shouldn't and that uh, train improperly? Absolutely. Any item can be misused, so that is why it's important as dog trainers and as people that are advocates for well-trained dogs to go out and talk to people about what's important, how to use these tools, and what your expectation should be, as well as how the dog should perform when you're using these so that you are putting together something that is going to be a positive and help people as opposed to let that stigma sit out there that somehow these collars are shock collars. I will tell you that collars themselves, if you put them on your arm, I will have people that are cynical about collars uh, put them on their arm after we've used them on their dog or before and push the button and have it electrically uh, electrically stimulate the person. It is not necessarily a shock. I think as every kid has done, sticking your tongue on the 9-volt battery, it is less than that uh, for, for a correction. And actually, I will have clients that will lose respect for their dogs when they feel the, the small tingle that the dog gets from the collar. And they'll really look at me and they'll go, does that really work? Um, it's far less than what you would get from a electric fence at a farm. And it is something that, honestly, it's, it's not a huge stimulus that even causes pain uh, for the dog. I would say it's more surprises them than anything uh, when you're when it's used at the right level. And you're never going to turn it up to high. You're going to make sure that it is at a level that works and that is functional. And you're going to do that through your e-collar conditioning as well as your introduction to the e-collar with the dog where you're doing your reinforcement. You're going to find that sweet spot for the dog that is a level that will work for the dog. Again, that's going to be called collar, uh, collar conditioning, and then again, you're going to do your introductory, introductory using it uh, to reinforce. Now, you will have many differing views out there, and I see one often, and that's why I wanted to talk about this. There is a view out there that a certain line of Labrador retrievers in this instance, it is the, uh, the the British lines, that they are so highly intelligent, you do not need to use a collar on these dogs. And I will tell you, that is a complete and total sales pitch. I have trained dogs from English lines. I've trained dogs from American field lines. I've trained dogs that were from zero lines and just had good drive and were a complete mutt. What it comes down to is you are able to correct the dog at distance when they are off lead. When you are working with a dog that is only on lead or on a long line, which a long line would be a, a, for better explanation, a piece of rope that would be 50 to 100 feet long. Once you no longer have control of the dog with that, the dogs will eventually go self-employed if you're trying to train within a certain window. The trainers that will tell you you do not need knee collar 90% 90% of them, I'm going to leave the 10% out there because I'm sure there's someone that has a good method that I don't know about and I don't want to say it's 100%, but 
but we'll go with 90% of them, will tell you that you do not need to train with an e-collar. They will say, absolutely, I can train your dog. Then they'll tell you they, they, they charge the same as any other trainer, and you will find out that it takes them six months to train your dog to a gun dog level. With a collar, we here at Saki Acres Retrievers are training the dogs in three months. So yes, if I kept a dog for an additional three months, I could absolutely get them near the level that we have them at with a collar, but you're paying double the money. The other problem that you're gonna run into is that those dogs aren't completely under control and they are out there where they can eventually tell you to pound sand. So even though you're doing repetition, 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 you will see dogs, see these dogs that aren't fully trained per se where they're completely under control because you have no way of correcting them once they're off lead. The same kennels that will tell you that e-collars are not needed will tell you that they train for the love of the breed and they don't need to run competition. There's a reason that they don't run competition. And again, I'm going to go now with 95% of dogs that run competition at a master finished or field trial level are, are used uh, or trained with electronics. I'll leave that 5% out there because I'm sure, again, someone has a method and has used it to get their dogs to a certain level. But your trainers that are running these dogs on these complex tasks where they need complete control for handling blind retrieves, multiple uh, marks or retrieves, uh, downed birds, they are using a collar so that they can control the dog at these distances. And these trainers that are saying they only train for the love of the breed, they are not running their dogs competitively to these top levels. Why? Because they can't. You don't have control of the dog once they're out there to stop them and do a whistle sit at 150 yards. You don't have the control to stop them when they're going toward what would be considered a poison bird, which is a bird that is set up to basically have your dog deviate from a marked retrieve that they're going on. You don't have the ability to put them through these complex tasks during training, much less run them competitively once they've learned these tasks with reinforcement. So this is, again, the stuff that's out there where you hear, oh yeah, you don't have to run them at this level. You don't have to, or you don't have to run them, run them at, uh, with an e-collar to have a hunting dog. Again, these same people are not running their own dogs competitively. So that's something you need to look at when you look at the effectiveness of training with a collar as opposed to not training with a collar. Can you train any dog to a certain level without a collar? Absolutely you can. But when you want to have control with them so that they hunt for you and they hunt as a team, your e-collar is going to be your best bet. The easiest way to explain it is I get in probably, I would say, 40 obedience dogs. So these are mixed breed dogs that people bring in because they're just so frustrated. I've had people show up in tears. I've had people say they're going to get a divorce. I've had people say they're going to take the dog to a shelter. We work with the dogs. We get them under control. And it always comes down to the same thing. They don't have control when the dog is out uh, off leash. So you will have, I would say, somewhere near 40 to 50% of our country that never let their dogs out when they're not on a leash. The reason being, they can't get them to come back. They don't want them to run away. So you need to work with what is the most effective uh, method for training your dogs. And again, that comes down to working with an e-collar. Scarlett has brought me a toy, which I believe it's her way of telling me that we don't like, want to get too long-winded on this topic. But stay tuned for our next topic, which is 
getting your blinds ready for ducks, duck and goose season. Again, we'll be right back after this message. This part of the podcast is brought to you proudly by Mech Outdoors. So next we're to the hunting tip portion of our podcast and today I want to talk about getting your duck blinds and goose blinds ready for the upcoming season. We have a property that we ran as a duck hunting lodge, Saki Acres Signature Lodge, for several years while we had the TV show. It's now just our hunting place and this next couple of weeks we are going to be up there several times to get the blinds where they're completely ready for the season. I might leave a few of them that we use during teal season um, that we can fix after the hunt because teal just don't quite seem to be as wary as your mallards or your geese are. But we are going to get these blinds ready and get them so that they are set up for duck season. I try to make sure when we do this that we're avoiding having our blinds have hard edges. Uh, we've got what would be considered, I guess, a box blind with a roof on them uh, that are out in the marsh. And these blinds are uh, wooden structures and they have a camo netting around them. What we're going to do this year, I've looked from afar and you can actually see the wood slats through the camo netting. So I'm going to get an inexpensive uh, burlap type material, dark colored, and I'm going to put that over the, uh, the, the blinds on the end, the wood part of the blinds. And then again, affix the, uh, the netting over the top of that burlap, uh, burlap uh, that is covering the wood. This will take away from the fact that you can see movement through the netting, but you can also see the wooden slats. The other thing I'm going to do is I have a uh, reed type material that I'm going to put on the edges of the blind that move and that look basically just like reeds. Now we're going to put those on the edges so that it gives us more of a soft edge. It's a cattail marsh, makes it look more like the, the type of area that we're hunting. When you get this stuff done, if you can, fly over your blinds with a drone. Drones are really common now. A lot of people have them. Use a drone just to fly over. I learned a lot by doing this with our blinds back when we had our lodge. We would fly over the, the, uh, the blinds to get photos for the sponsors that uh, had the blind making material. And the reed type material that was on the roof made the blinds look like Twinkies out in the marsh. It was too bright and too yellow. So we learned that we needed to either cover the roofs with the netting or spray it with a spray paint. So we're gonna actually get a match type color spray paint and probably do a tan and a green and spray down uh, these uh, these reed type, this reed type material that is already on the blinds because we just put uh, netting over it in the past. And we're also going to use that, that same strategy for the reed material that we're going to use to uh, break up our, our hard corners on our blinds. The other thing that I do is we get bundles of cattails and we'll affix them to the outside of the blinds. And the cool part about that is as the season goes on, these cattails die and they turn uh, the tannish brownish color that all the other cattails turn. So you have a natural cover. But the other thing is we will 
go and we will find clumps of cattails that are floating because it's a marsh and we've drug them over in front of the blinds before in the past and we actually tie them to the blinds and then as time goes on they grow up in front of the blind so again your best cover is having mother nature help you we've got actual cattails growing in front of in front of our blinds we have i would say oh gosh probably four blinds that we need to do this with uh, my expectations are always that I can get two done a day. Sometimes it's less, but we set up work days with the guys that we hunt with and we get our stuff set. And it's also a fun time of year to uh, talk and uh, reconnect with your, with your hunting crew so that you are out there and you're having a good time. So I hope that helps you on getting your blinds ready for the upcoming season. Thanks for listening to this segment of Sporting Dog Adventures. We're going to take a quick break. And we'll be right back with our training tip. This portion of the podcast is proudly brought to you by Boucher Automotive in Janesville, Wisconsin. On today's training tip for Sporting Dog Adventures, we're going to talk about training duration. You want to keep your training duration for a young dog at 10 to 15 minutes per session. And I do one to to two sessions per day. You want to keep your training sessions for an older dog around the 20 minute mark because a lot of these times you are setting stuff up that just take longer to develop. The way to look at it is having modules or steps you're going to do with your dog each day. Some of these training sessions are gonna end in five minutes and you're gonna accomplish that stuff for the day, play with the dog, really build on that attitude of making things fun for the rest of that session. Some of these uh, sessions are gonna be a little more complex and they're gonna take to where you're close to 15 minutes. Again, you don't want to go over that amount of time if needed or if, if you can avoid because it is very hard on the dog as you're doing your training. When you're working with young dogs especially, you're working on force fetch, trained retrieve, you're working on your e-collar conditioning, e-collar enforcement and obedience. These are things that you don't want to belabor too much every day for a long period of time because it's hard on the dog. You want them to have fun during training. You want them to have attitude building positive experiences. So you don't want to make that training too long. And remember, you want to make it where you are doing 10 to 20% negative reinforcement and 80 to 90% positive reinforcement. Positive reinforcement being through your body language, your voice inflection, telling the dog that they're doing great so that you are building that training attitude so you're going to have more success with that dog as you're going step by step and building your dog in the process ready for hunting season. I hope that helps with this week's training tip. Thank you again for listening to Sporting Dog Adventures. Have a wonderful day. Sporting Dog Adventures, run, boy, run. Everything you need is here under the sun.